But one of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference. All you want is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or a wife, a nice house, a nice car, long weekends, good vacations, grow old healthy, have a fun retirement, die easy, no hell. And that's all you want. You don't give a rip whether your life counts on this earth for eternity. And that's a tragedy in the making. That is a tragedy in the making. About three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and then in retirement, partnering up with Ruby, also pushing 80, and going from village to village in Cameroon. And the brakes give way, over a cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. And I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost, a, a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick, in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy, I asked. It is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. I've got a little article here from Reader's Digest. You don't read Reader's Digest, I know that. But there is a generation who does. This is a tragedy. Title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early, February 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. 
Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. As we have studied in the book of Galatians and we've seen um, Paul walk through this text for the last three or four months, um, this is what we're driving to. This idea that Paul encapsulates in those last verses that said, I will glory alone in the cross. That's what he's driving to. That's the point of the book. And so this morning, as we finish Galatians, it's hard to believe. It seems like just yesterday we were here and there was cold, sleety rain and we started in the book of Galatians and now we're finishing up. Next week we're going to go back to 1 Samuel. But today we're going to review what we've learned in Galatians and we're going to tie it up. Paul ties it up beautifully with that text. And so let's talk about how we got here. Paul, remember, was a missionary and he had gone through Asia Minor, through that area there of the province of Galatia, and he had preached the gospel and the gospel was heard. It, on the one hand, everywhere he went, people were getting saved. And on the other hand, there were Judaizers that were there that were jealous that so many people were coming to the church. And so no sooner had he left the church of, of Galatia, they came in behind him and they started saying, hey... Jesus ain't enough. And Paul writes this letter in anger. There's no other way to put it. He's upset. He starts out. He goes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. And you're running to a different gospel. Not that there is another, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And we spent a lot of time talking about how these Judaizers were coming in and saying, it's Jesus plus circumcision. It's Jesus plus the high holy days. It's Jesus plus these dietary rules. And we've talked about how in the church in America today, we don't struggle with whether or not to eat a pork sandwich. We don't struggle with adding circumcision to our lives for salvation. But this letter speaks loudly to us because we do say it's Jesus plus a bunch of stuff. If we're just fully honest with each other, if you were to go, and we said this, if you were to go ask people outside of the church, what do you think the church means? What does it represent? Most of them would be able to tell you what the church is against. Well, you can't be with this. You can't do that. You can't do this thing. This, and what we try to do is not say it's just Christ. In this last section that was just read, Paul said, there is no difference between circumcised and uncircumcised. There's only those that are a new creation. 
We could say that in our parlance today and say there is no difference between a drunk and a sober person. There is no difference between a, a gay and a straight person. There is no difference between a, a druggie and a non-druggie. The only difference is, is there are people who are in Christ and their new creations and there are people who aren't. And that's it. And when we add this slavery of works to come to Jesus just as you are, but as you come down the aisle, you better clean yourself up. Then we, it's not the gospel anymore. Now it's just theistic behavior modification. Here are the things you've got to do to make it into heaven. Now we would never say those words out loud, but that's exactly what we say. Here's your list. Work this list, and if you do a good job, you'll make it to heaven. And so Paul writes this whole letter to angrily say, No! It's just Jesus! And so Paul starts out and he establishes his right to preach the gospel. I used the, the analogy when we were first talking about this of being in the gym. And this really happened to me at the Y. I was, I'm sitting there working out, and this guy comes up to me and says, Hey, man, do you need a trainer? And I said, No, I'm, I'm good. I, I, think, I, I think I'm pretty good. And he goes, I can help you lose all that fat there in the middle. <laughs> and shockingly, that made me mad. I'm like, hey, what are you talking about? He didn't have the right to speak into my life. If I walk around Walmart and I see somebody dressed stupid, which if you walk around Walmart, you're going to see somebody dressed stupid. I'm just saying. But if I walk around Walmart and I see somebody dressed stupid, I go up to them and go, you know, you look dumb. They're not going to change their behavior. So Paul establishes, he spends a big part of this book and establishes that he has the authority to speak into their lives. He establishes that he's an apostle just like the other apostles. He establishes that he's walked the gospel out. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. And he showed how for three years, just like the 12 apostles spent three years with Jesus, he spent three years with Jesus in the Arabian desert. And he establishes his right to speak into their lives. So if we were going to outline the book of Galatians, we would say that he had a, has a section where he uses himself as the example of how the gospel works. He spent a big chunk of his life trying to earn his way to God that didn't work out for him. And so he establishes his right to speak. He uses the argument that he had with Peter. Remember he told Peter to his faith, no, you can't add to the gospel. You can't separate people out by Gentiles and Jews. Just like today, we can't separate people out between good church folk and non-good church folk. And whatever division you want to use. He explains how the, he walked the gospel out. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to Christ. And we said that a beautiful definition of the gospel would have been, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God. And so he asked the question, what God began by the Spirit, he's going to finish now in the flesh. Did God save you and you didn't have anything to do to earn that salvation? Now that you're growing in your faith, are you, or is it left to you? Do you go, God save me, I'm a sinner, there's nothing I can do. And then God go, you're saved, now you need to go take care of this. No, that God is sovereign over our sanctification just as much as he is our justification. 
That he's the one that does the work. That if we're working in the flesh, we're abandoning the gospel. Now, Paul hems us in, remember, in that last section. It says that doesn't mean you can go do whatever you want to do. The analogy that I used there, if you recall, was the uh, nutty bars. And I've had two different wives come up to me and say, I got a bone to pick with you, preacher. And I'm like, what did I do? And they said, my husband has now hid nutty bars in the house. And whenever I catch him in there after the kids have gone to bed eating nutty bars, I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, well, the preacher said it was okay. I'm here to tell you right now that nutty bars are from God. Amen. (laughs) Come on. But know that the gospel doesn't give us the freedom to do whatever we want to do and sin any way that we want to sin, but the gospel gives us freedom to serve him. We even went so far in this section to talk about Martin Luther's The Bondage of the Will and Jonathan Edwards' The Freedom of the Will and how in Christ we're free. And he who Christ has made free, he who God has set free is free indeed. And so Paul uses the first, he uses himself as the example, and then he goes to the Old Testament to make his point. And we saw analogies from Abram and Hagar. We saw him work through the Old Testament. And guys, with the notes, I just really feel God leading me to flip, so hang on and try to keep up. In Galatians 3.10, we read, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. As uh, R.C. Sproul points out in his sermon on this text, we don't talk a lot in the church today about curses. In fact, when we, if I would say where I normally hear curses, that, that word, <laughs> not where I normally hear curses, um, <clears throat> that would be in, in, in the, uh, the uh, gathering here, and people go, oh, sorry, preacher. Um, no, where I hear the idea of cursing is on TV talking about voodoo or witchcraft or something like that, right? We don't talk about curses a lot in the church today. And yet, the Old Testament is actually chocked full of the concept of, in biblical terms, a blessing or a wheel or a curse or a woe. Remember in the book of Exodus, God said to the children of Israel when he gave them the law, I set before you a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey and do all the works of the law that I've given you, or a curse if you disobey. Throughout the Old Testament, some, we have whole books of the Bible and the prophets that it's the whole book is the, a prophet lining up country after country after country saying, Woe unto you! Woe unto you! Isaiah seems to go back and forth between this idea of God saying, Woe unto you, Israel! You didn't follow God and do what he said, so you're going to be cursed. And the wheel, you're blessed. God's going to do what he said. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and return to me, I will come unto them and heal their land and restore them. And so that's a specific promise given in Jeremiah where there's a blessing and then we have have the idea throughout the Old Testament of cursing. The New Testament doesn't take that away. Remember, Jesus said that the wheel from a prophetic viewpoint, the, the blessing, he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit for they 
shall inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Woe unto you, hypocrites. So that idea is still in the New Testament of a blessing and a curse. When I do a wedding, um, I always finish the wedding with the uh, Shema, the, the, the blessing that's in the Old Testament. And it's interesting, I just grabbed a, a, my big folder that I've got that says wedding and picked it up and it was y'all's wedding. So, ha-ha. Um, so, I always end the wedding by reading the, the, this. I always raise my hand like this and go, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then I always say, you may now kiss the bride, and then they smooch and I get to present them. But that blessing, I want to give them that biblical blessing. And so in reality, R.C. Sproul points out in his sermon, The Curse Motif, that a biblical curse would be the opposite of that. The Lord curse thee and go against thee. The Lord hide his face from you and withhold his grace from you. The Lord turn his face from you and cut you off. And those would be a horrific thought. That is a terrible, terrible thing to even think about. But the Old Testament, Paul, here talks about the idea of a curse. For those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. They are cut off from God. We can't earn our way to God. You can never be good enough. You can't do it. That's why the Bible tells us that the law is a schoolmaster. So that as we try to labor under the law, we cry out for a Savior. I need somebody to take this from me. And so when we tell somebody, welcome to the Christian family. Now here's the list of stuff you've got to do. We missed the point. We are adopted into God's family. And so it's not a relationship of slave and master. It's a relationship of a father and a son. And so Paul goes on. And he shifts from those external views of here's how the works out in my life, here's how it works out in the Old Testament, and shifts to here's how it has worked out in you. And we talked about how for freedom Christ has set you free. What amazing words. We laughed about how Chad had to preach on, on <laughs> uh, the, uh, the Old Testament law and all that stuff, and then my very next verse was, for freedom Christ has set us free. And, and, and that just really wasn't fair, and I'm glad that I wasn't the one that planned it that way. Um, but God, Christ has set us free so that we can serve him. And then we come to, the, to our section today. Where Paul takes everything that he has been teaching and sums it all up. It's, it's kind of like it's closing arguments. Remember, we talked about how Paul, in, in all likelihood, was pacing back and forth 
kind of dictating this letter as it's being written. And, and Luke or whoever it was is sitting there writing down as, as he goes. And so Paul is now shifted into the, uh, you know, the and finally kind of stuff. And he, he goes into this idea of, of sowing and reaping. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And then he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap. And here in this context, Paul is 100% talking about giving. Now, you guys who know me know that I'm never going to say that if you give $5 to this church, that's planting a seed, and that God will give you 100 Because that's a lie. But what Paul is saying here is what you sow, you reap. And so if you spend all your energy chasing after money... What you're going to have is either money or bills. If you spend all your life chasing after something that's going to make you happy, at the end of the day, you're going to be empty. Because we can't find our joy and happiness by serving ourselves. And Paul is saying, whatever you invest in, that's where your returns will be. Whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. I heard an old preacher tell the story, and I, as he told the story, I thought to myself, that ain't true, that didn't happen. But now I have people all the time come up to me when I tell stories about stuff that's happened to me, and they go, did that really happen to you? And so now I feel bad for doubting the guy. He told the story about how when he was a little kid, his daddy was plant, they were planting corn. And so his dad showed him that if you go along here on this row, and they had five or six long rows of corn, and he had, he had a broom handle, and they had already... Uh, they had already turned it, and they would already tilled it, and it, the, the soil was ready, and they even had the mound there from the cutting disc. And he said, just walk along here with this hoe handle, and you push the end of that handle in, and you drop a seed in it and cover it up and go to the next one and just plant all these, this corn seed like that. Well, he starts doing that, and he gets a little bit the way down, and he looks down at the ground, and he looks at this sack, and says, this is a waste of time. And so he kicks the top off that mound, and he dumps all of his corn seeds in there and buries it back over and tells his daddy, I planted them. It took about a week for the reckoning to occur because the way that he had planted, that was how it came up. And so here Paul is talking about specifically providing for the people that, that, that are teaching you. And I've shared with you guys how um, I have seen the subject of giving so misused in my life that I've hesitated to teach on giving. I, I find it very difficult to talk about. And I, I told you that I, I would much rather preach on sex than, than giving. But I will say that in the last few weeks, as we've talked more about giving, I've been told that there are people who are giving to the church now who have never given before. And I want to tell you something. Me avoiding any subject because I'm uncomfortable about it is sin. And so I need to look at you as a church and ask you to forgive me. Because... God blesses a cheerful giver is in the Bible, whether I want to quote it or not. And so as you give, whether you give to this church or, or you give to another church, or as you give, you can't outgive God. Now, I'm not saying that those returns are always going to be financial. 
I can give you an example of that. One time, uh, Ann and I were, uh, we, we were actually in Columbia. We had shut our business down. We'd moved to Columbia to work for, for Drummond, and I ha- got a phone call that said, um, hey, you had a liability insurance policy, and since you've canceled it, you, we've got $1,100 that, that we owe you from the insurance company. I wasn't expecting it. It was just free money. And so my mind immediately starts thinking about what kind of firearms I can buy, what kind kind of Jeep parts I can get. I mean, i got some things that need to happen here. And about the time, within an hour or so of the insurance company calling me, I got a call from Kika. And Kika said, I've got a prayer request for you. There's a, there's a lady here in uh, my church, and he was at that time pastoring a church in um, India, southern India. And he said, she, uh, she is pregnant, and the way that the medical system here works is that if you pay up front, it's a, just a set fee. If you, you pay $1,000, and then you, you're going to have a baby, no matter how many complications there are. And if you don't pay that up front, then you have to pay per incident and she has had complications in the past. And so I just want to ask you to pray that God would provide this $1,000 to help, help this lady. And I'm not stupid. If God just gave me money that I wasn't looking for and there's a need that's like almost to the penny about that amount of money, I'm like, well, we don't need to pray anymore, Kika, because God's already answered the prayer. And so we sent the money. Now, I did not, three weeks later, get another check for $1,000. I didn't get a new boat, didn't get a new car. I feel very strongly the Lord leading this church to pay me $600,000 a year, but apparently y'all ain't hearing that call. (laughs) So that woman did have lots of complications, and that baby almost died. And the blessing is, is that there are two Americans that never met this lady that got to represent Jesus to her. She didn't know us. All she knew was that some people that loved Jesus provided that money. And so that made her faith grow. That made her a stronger believer. That made her look to God for her needs. Is there a price on that? And there's a little Indian girl, now she's probably 12, running around in the Nagar area named Ann, freaking everybody out. But God blessed, not financially, God blessed, pressed down, overflowing. And God is saying, Paul is saying here, provide for those that are working for you, because what you reap, you'll sow. He sums up everything that we've seen in the book of Galatians. He, he finishes up here, let me say, See, with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. A lot of people think that what this means is, is that whoever that, that transcription says wrote it out, and then here at the end, Paul uh, is writing out in his own hand this, these closing remarks. And he uses big letters because as most people think that he was probably, probably pretty blind. If you look at my, my uh, phone or iPad, you'll see that I have to have great big letters. So he says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who force you to be circumcised. And what Paul is saying here, if we're going to take this and apply it back to us. We're not arguing in the church today about circumcision. We, we argue in, in today in the church about people living the way that we want them to live. And Paul is saying that the reason people do that is so that they won't have to identify in the cross. In fact... 
Paul closes this whole idea up with an amazing verse that says, far be, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, <clears throat> if Garrett comes down here and gets saved, and then I teach him how to act like me, and I lord over him, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to act this way, you need to dress that way, you need to quit wearing that, you need to quit doing this, and he acts like me, who gets the glory? Me. You see, the whole idea of us getting saved what that ultimately is, according to Paul, is that we die to ourselves. Amen. You see, we owe God a sin debt that we cannot pay. The law says that anyone who breaks any of the law is cursed. And we studied what that idea of being cursed means. But you see... 2,000 years ago, there was a man who lived who never sinned. He never broke the law. In fact, he fulfilled the law. He was God himself come in the flesh. And man, in our most ultimate act of evil and wickedness, said to the God-man, Kill it! And then he was dragged outside of the city and he was hung on a tree. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't have any sin. But you see, he became sin for us. So that at that moment on the cross, as Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, being interpreted, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, the Father turned, and Jesus became curse for you and for me. He wasn't cursed. He became the curse. God the Father turned from him all the shame that we deserve, all the punishment that we deserve, all of our hypocrisy, all of our game playing, all of our lies, all of our pornography, all of our wicked thoughts, all of our worry, all of our sin is poured out on him and the curse fell on him in your place. And because he took the cup and became that curse, then we are free. Why would we pick those shackles back up and try to labor under the law again? The law, the back, uh, the back of the law has been broken. The law has been perfectly fulfilled. We are free in Him to live this Christian walk out. We're free to love each other. We're free to identify with that death and die to what we want. 
Romans chapter 6, what do we say? Do we keep on sinning that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into his death will be raised like him to walk in newness of life? You see, because not only did he become the curse, he was taken down from that tree, he was put in a borrowed tomb, and three days later when those ladies showed up to anoint his body, that tomb was empty. And the very power, according to Romans chapter 6, that lifted him up out of that grave can help you walk in newness of life. And so Paul says here in Galatians, if I'm going to boast in anything, it's in that cross. Because without it, I am nothing. And so the question comes, what are you boasting in? What are you living your life for? And as the sermon snippet that we watched from John Piper was on that very text, that the sermon text, what are you living your life for? Would anybody around you that's lived your life with you say that you're living your life to boast in the cross? Is that something that's evident to your own heart? If not, join me this week as I have been laboring through this text. I have been praying with the demoniac son. I believe, help me my unbelief. If you need to confess his sin that you're not living for the cross, then this altar is open. If you're here and you've never called on the name of the Lord to be saved, there is nothing I would have on my life that I would rather do than show you how to do that. And if you're looking for a church home, we would love to have you join us. Father God, Lord, I thank you for the book of Galatians. I thank you for these last three or four months as we have labored through this book. Lord, as we have struggled with some hard verses. Lord, as we have grown. God, I pray that you will apply the lessons in this book to our hearts. God, I pray that you would sanctify us with your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.